Four o'clock on Tuesday means Tuesday Home Time with Jan Bartlett. Today the calls for an independent inquiry into the alleged historic rape. We won't be concentrating on that, but many other areas that Catherine Kelly believes should disqualify Christian Porter in his position as the primary protector of the rule of law in Australia. To another Kelly, Kathy Kelly in Chicago and the new anti-war and peace organisation to end all wars. Part one of an interview with Associate Professor Tillman Ruff on the 10th anniversary of the Fukushima earthquake, tsunami and nuclear disaster in Japan. The go-ahead given for the disputed expansion of the Australian War Memorial, but it's not too late to have a say. We're speaking with Dr Sue Wareham. And finally, Nora Mansur, Palestinian Australian, and the decision by the International Criminal Court to investigate war crimes in the occupied Palestinian territories. But first, Mr Kevin Healy, and I do hope you can stay tuned until 6pm. And if that's not possible, you can hear the program again. It streams for a week. And then there is the podcast, both on 3cr.org.au. A weak journalist that went to coin a cliche, we have the good news and the bad news. And to coin another cliche, first the bad news, the good news. Uh, Christian Portaloo is no longer the Attorney General, nor the Minister for Caring Business Class Relations, intent on introducing new Caring Business Class Relations legislation to make avaricious wage slaves' lives even that little bit better, making sure they respect the God-given rights of caring employers such as not being restricted by productivity, choking practices like wages and conditions. That, that's the good news, the bad news. Former Free Kills the Workers, arguably the most anti-evil unions, anti-lazy, avaricious workers, legal giant, although there's a few strong challenges. Anyway, former Free Kills the Workers partner, Michaelia Koch the Workers, is now acting Attorney General and resurrected as Minister for Caring Business Class Relations. And we all have warm memories of Michaela's dedicated fight to make our lives better last time she held this role, even if her staff didn't teller thinks it was extremely convenient for her not to know. Poor Michaela being the only person in the whole ministry, it seems, who didn't know. The changes are down to what appears to be almost a pandemic, an out-of-control outbreak of sexually transmitted disease sweeping through the government, which big supremo scuttled them more lash son, a.k.a. scummo, who also conveniently, most conveniently, turns out to be the only person in the whole government who didn't know, Scobo says the federal, uh, sorry, police, must deal with it, and the federal police say they have no jurisdiction. It's a matter for the state police, and the state police say they have a bit of a problem with the complainant being dead. But none of this deterred Scuttlebeam's determination that the law is the law. We will handle this in the traditional Trublawasi way we handle these matters. He was all leadership. Uh, which is, sweep them under the carpet, prompting us to notice a big bulge in the carpet and a peek under revealed a whopping big whiteboard with arrows zooming everywhere, allocating and reallocating sports rorts, uh, sorry, uh, sports grants, and another whopping big whiteboard with arrows zooming everywhere, 
allocating and reallocating community grants. Got no idea where they came from. Although maybe we should mention the community grants whiteboard fine to the Minister for Keeping Us Secure and Concentration Camps, Razor Wire and Sink the Boats, Constable Peter Duffer, whom we recall knew nothing about them. Nothing, like you know, nothing. And the Minister for Being Offensive and Train-Killing Lender Feminist Solidarity, Reynolds, last time we saw her, she was heading off to hospital looking sicker than the submarine contract she also seemed to know nothing about. As an aside, can anyone explain why we need to hand all these trillions to the merchants of death? Hospital, after telling us one day what she knew and telling us the next day that she didn't know what she'd said she knew, and on the third day she had no idea what she denied she knew she didn't know, corrected that when she called an alleged rape victim a lying cow, she did not mean the alleged victim was a lying cow. When I get a chance, I'll explain that to the lying cow. She cleared up the matter. And just to help the government out a bit more, speaking of offensive trained killing, the number one trained killer, Angus Cam Belt Them Up, told a group of trained kill graduate women, we presume he didn't mean the blokes, women, they should not be attractive. Make yourselves ugly and don't go out after dark and don't drink after dark or whatever happens to them, they'll have coming to them. They'll only have themselves to blame. On the other hand, the young train killer giant mine blokes can go out after dark, drink after dark, and if anything happens, the women involved will only have themselves to blame for being attractive and being out after dark and for drinking after dark. Although only the being out bit would be enough for it to be their own fault. That was presumably Angus's contribution to International Women's Day. And don't forget, he gave them his wisdom. Now that you are expert, highly skilled, state-of-the-art trained killers, much as you'd like to, you can't practice your wonderful skills on other true blue Aussies. And well other than in certain circumstances where a bit of social discipline may be required, but generally that is sadly out of bounds. Sadly, you must wait to enjoy the fun, fun, fun of train killing until we send you off to train kill those we brainwash. Oh, sorry, ensure you are evil, evil, bad, bad subhuman species who attempt to fool the great believers in liberty, freedom and democracy, those admirable qualities and virtues we protect, the freedom of capital for instance, by involving themselves in evil terrorist activities like wedding parties and family dinners. Like our warm memories of Michaela, don't we all have warm, warm memories of Angus standing there night after night on our telly newses next to Constable Duffer boasting how many no-proper papers, queue-jumping, illegal boat people he had locked up that day, banished to idyllic Pacific Island paradises, a critical blow in the fight to protect liberty, freedom and democracy. Interesting how we are preparing to accept refugees from Hong Kong at the moment while we lock up those seeking refuge from the countries we've invaded. Those who should be locked up are the long-haired, commie, greeny, wooden work in an iron lot suggesting poor Christian Portaloo is shedding tears over being accused with no proof while he oversaw the robo-debt debacle, as they call it, 
rather than the government's explanation that it was a slight error, suggesting those he targeted there lacked the same rights he is now demanding. Shame, long-haired commie, lots shame. There's no comparison, Christian defended himself. They had a right to explain their crimes by contacting the department. And it wasn't my fault they couldn't get through for all those years. After all, I was too busy sending out all those demands. Right now, poor Portaloo demands our sympathy, and, and I'm sure I can speak for all of us to say, Christian, you have it. We all feel so sorry for you. What was that? Did someone mention Schadenfreude? Oh, and just to prove Linda Feminist Solidarity Reynolds' innocence, the aforementioned Constable Duffer sprang to her defence, painting her as the victim. She meant, you know, like, nothing against, like, you know, the lying cow. He, too, helped the government through the pandemic. Sadly, also a pandemic of disrespect for those God-given rights of caring employers we mentioned earlier. Lazy, avaricious workers egged on by the evil unions. Take this case in Queensland, Her Most Gracious Majesty's land, and if you want to know evil, listener, this is it. Nothing could be more heinous. Five CFMEU officials, including the Mining Division State President, facing the federal court over out-of-control criminality at the Glen Rotten to the Core Oakey North Coal Mine, where the workers were locked out for months. Note, locked out, not on strike, which would be illegal. Lockout, legal. Locked out because they refused to accept the company's little cost-cutting cutting methods designed to protect their jobs, the very raison d'etre of Glen Rotten Tudor. Evil union officials facing the federal court for... Sit down, listen, and this will shock even the most hardened of us. For calling replacement workers escorted in every day past the picket line by Rotten Tudor and the constabulary, scabs. Two crimes, really, because a picket line is also illegal, unless it conforms to the law by doing nothing, absolutely nothing, to prevent the caring employer going about its lawful business, in which case the picket line is about as useful as Constable Duffer's brain. When, as the financial media keeps telling us, these are not scabs, they are replacement workers. The illegal picket line not only calling them scabs, but holding up signs saying they're scabs. And just when we thought such criminality couldn't get worse, I hope you're still sitting down, they filmed the scab... Oh, sorry, sorry, I nearly committed a crime myself. Filmed the replacement workers. Filmed them. Another crime alleged by the prosecution, led by the fair work, true blue Aussie, no longer work choices, just looks like it, ombudsman, who happens to be a woman, who said she was protecting the inalienable right of workers not to participate in union activities, the right not to join a union, a right the caring business class and their governments defend to the nth degree, just as they equally, vehemently defend the right of those who exercise their right not to join a union, not to be charged a fee by the union for accepting wages and conditions won for them by the union. An argument, the right not to pay for what they receive, a logic that led me to walk into a retailer the other day and announce I was going to take the goods I wanted, but exercise my right not to pay for them. Which obviously wasn't a good analogy, because sadly, listener, I'm now writing this by hand under a very dim light in a prison cell. 
our hopes after yet another expensive report into the dire state of aged care that this time we might see some positive action were given a fillip by Friday's Trubilawasi Capitalist Review P1 headline, Aged Care Tax Killed Off. So, there goes the little matter of paying for the massive improvements needed. It took about three days for yet another report to be heading for the dustbin and or the bottom drawer. Don't know why that reminded me, but would someone tell the Socialist Party that it mightn't be a bad idea for it to come up with, wait for this, a policy? Oh no, I forgot. They've announced they're going to abandon a raft of policies, which infers they must have had some. Really bad policies like charges and taxes and attacks on the rorts of the filthiest rich of the filthy rich. They won't do anything to affect the filthiest rich of the filthy rich. Well, other than sensible good for all of us policies to make the filthiest rich of even more filthiest rich. Because policies suggesting the rich should pay a bit more tax than, say, zero and not receive handouts from the public purse for the privilege of being rich while contributing that zero to the public purse from which they demand their rights to extract their little handouts would, as the filthiest rich of the filthy rich through their caring business class spokespeople, including the ex-Institute of Public Very, Very Private Affairs, Tim will make you poor, son, pointed out, will attack the poorest of the poor, the mum and dad pensioners who will suffer intolerable financial pain over and above the intolerable financial pain they already suffer if the rich are forced to give and not take. They never quite explained how making the rich give and not take, well, give a little and not take as much, would make the poorest of the poor worse off, which shows how we just can't comprehend the intricacies of the delicate flower that is the economy. Oh, and sensibly, the socialists have also abandoned any attempt to reduce the rorts, or sorry, sensible economic arrangements, benefiting landlords like negative gearing. But they have been more than negative, not just abandoning policies unpopular with the filthiest rich of the filthy rich, but finally they have adopted a policy on climate change, if there is such a thing, having transferred responsibility to that out-of-control radical Chris Bowen to fossils, determining the answer to climate change is fossils. More and more, gas, 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 frack, 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 coal, coal, coal. By adopting identical policies to the government, Supremo and would-be big Supremo Anthony Albinguzzi, speaking of out-of-control socialism, looked very content. Uh, by adopting policies identical to the government, the government can't attack us. So on a cheery note, between that lot defending the poorest of the poor and the lazy avaricious workers' interests now in the hands of Michaela, things are certainly looking up. Good afternoon. And thanks to Mr. Kevin Healy. There are many ways that you can keep up to date with 3CR news, events and programs. With Facebook stripping content, it's a timely reminder to focus on the communication channels and platforms that the community controls. The 3CR website is a great spot to catch all your shows via audio on demand or scroll through our range of podcasts. It's also where you can sign up to our monthly newsletter, buy yourself a new T-shirt, or check out archival audio from past broadcasts. Of course, we're also on Twitter, at 3CR, and Instagram, at 3CR Melbourne. 
But don't forget our mighty AM band. Catch us anytime on 855AM. Keep in touch. 3cr.org.au CCR's Binary Bardstein broadcast is airing seven hours of trans and gender-diverse radio in the lead-up to the 2021 Trans Day of Visibility and as part of BiHealth Awareness Month. Bringing the noise to the Western gender binary. Tune in on Sunday 21st of March between 12 noon and 7pm to hear trans and gender-diverse voices busting binaries, including in areas of art, culture, politics, well-being and resilience. Towards the Transgender Day of Audibility. For more information, head to 3cr.org.au forward slash binary busting. The 3CR Binary Busting Broadcast Project is financially supported by a Pride Events grant from the Victorian Government. You're listening to 3CR 855 AM on digital and on the internet www.3cr.org.au There is an increasing tide of support for a full independent inquiry totally removed from the Parliament and led by a respected member of the judiciary into the alleged historic rape by a sitting member of the Australian Government of a woman in January 1988. After days of conjecture about his identity and a New South Wales police decision to close the investigation into the case, the Attorney-General Christian Porter denied the accusation he raped the woman and would not resign as Attorney-General because that would mean anyone could lose their job on the basis of unproven accusations. One of those who fully supports this investigation is Catherine Kelly, representing the Alliance Against Political Prosecutions. But the issue we're discussing today is not that of the alleged rape, but what Catherine identified as the failings in his duty as the primary protector of the rule of law in Australia. When I spoke with Catherine, I asked her first about the Four Corners program on the 10th of November last year, and what were the key points of that investigation into the behaviour of Porter? There was reflection on Porter's character, the suggestion or the allegation that he was uh, kissing and cuddling with a staffer in a public bar in Canberra fairly recently. I can't remember the date. That is not really behaviour that you'd expect of the first legal officer of the land. I mean, whether they should have gone back to his early days in university, which certainly didn't reflect well on him either. People have described him as sexist and misogynist. But whether that should have gone, been gone into, I'm not sure. It is relevant in the fact that the, the Attorney General must be above reproach. But they are not the main considerations I have against him remaining as the Attorney General. There are a lot of other ones that I think are, well, I was going to say possibly more serious, but their treatment of women is extremely serious. And we recognise that now that uh, we didn't perhaps in some years gone by. Which one would you like to start with? There's 
the issue of his lack of compliance with the legal reporting requirements for issuing of national security information orders. Now this is a requirement, a legislative requirement, that he has to report on how many of these orders he has given out. And he failed to do that for three years from when he became um, Attorney General in 2017 till last year. These orders are extremely significant because they give him the power to determine what um, matters can be heard in a court. There's some matters under national security information orders that can be not provided to the defence or to the defence witnesses or just generally in the court. So these things are extremely important and particularly if we come to the matters of Bernard Collieri and Witness K, I guess some of your um, listeners may not be aware of these cases and also the David McBride case with the ADF, he's a whistleblower for the ADF. They do know about it, but it's good to remind people. There was uh, a bugging of the East Timorese government offices in 2004 by the Australian Security Intelligence Service. And one of the technicians or people in charge of that was not comfortable about bugging the offices of our poor neighbour during negotiations for the Timor Sea oil and gas resources. So this was to give Australia benefit and basically to cheat East Timor out of their resources. And the country who has been really supportive of Australia right back to the Second World War when they helped us enormously, which resulted in many thousands of them being killed. That's a, a, a big story and I won't go into it right now, but uh, they've certainly been friendly to Australia and this was not a friendly action in return. So the ASIS officer was not comfortable with what he had done and he went to the Director General of Intelligence and Security, that's internally, and expressed his concerns. Really nothing was done about it, but he was advised he could get a lawyer and he got Bernard Collieri as his lawyer, former ACT Attorney General and a very respected lawyer. So he was his lawyer acting for this ASIS operative who is called Witness K. And they were charged in 2018, I think, under the national security legislation and have been in court close to 50 times collectively, both of them, in separate trials. But neither of those trials, they're still in the directions hearing stage. They haven't reached the actual trial stage. So it seems like they're really trying to wear them down. And there's been a lot of opposition to it. I mean, we've had rallies in the, outside the courts for the last couple of years against these cases. You know, he's pursuing of these cases, of these two men of integrity and honesty, is completely against, I think, Australia's interests. I don't know what it's doing for Australia, except making very well known that we were that Australia was bugging the East Timor government offices in 2004, which is not something we can be proud of. Of course, Alexander Downer was the foreign minister and Howard the prime minister at that time. Basic, uh, the best beneficiary of these, uh, this bugging was Woodside Petroleum. So this is uh, Australia bugging in the interests of a multinational company, which is not what Australia should be doing. 
the persecution of these two men has virtually destroyed their future careers? Well, yes. Bernard Cleary is, is working uh, a little bit on other sorts of cases at the moment, but really it has destroyed his career. And, and he's um, 75 or something now, so he's uh, at advanced age and he doesn't need this sort of stress and jail sort of hanging over him as uh, I don't know I don't know anything about witness K but I understand he is very stressed as well that's what I've just heard publicly and there was a witness J what happened there witness J I'm not so familiar with his case I do know that he was brought to trial in the ACT found guilty and served his sentence all without anybody knowing even the ACT justice minister didn't know about his incarceration and him serving a jail term. So I think he was an intelligence officer as well, but I don't know the details of that. But there is a review of that um, situation taking place now that people can make submissions on until April, April 30th, I think. It's an extremely serious case too that somebody can be imprisoned and virtually nobody knows that he has been in prison, that he's been charged and been in prison. So this is an incredible turn of events through the Australian legal system to be having so much in secret. The other case I should mention is David McBride, who is an Australian military lawyer. He went to Afghanistan for two tours and saw things there that he was extremely concerned about, that he thought were crimes. And he took his concerns initially to the defence uh, complaints person. Nothing was done about it for a few years. Eventually, he ended up giving various information to the ABC and they published or broadcast the ABC Afghan files in 2017. Then again in 2018, I think he was charged as well. So these are all after Porter became Attorney General. There have been national security orders signed off for these cases, which weren't reported on, or particularly for Bernard Caleri's case. Yeah, so that's that secrecy part that we really can't accept as Australians. Our legal system is descending to such secrecy. When these people, this legislation was designed for terrorists, and of course no, none of these people are terrorists, so it's a complete misuse of the legislation and the secrecy provisions to be using these, and actually to be prosecuting these people in the first place. Was the Attorney-General questioned on the veracity of these cases and why he chose the path he did? Well, certainly we have sent letters to him and to the Prime Minister about uh, about these issues and I got a letter back from the Prime Minister, and I can quote you, or from the Assistant Minister, saying the concerns you have expressed in your correspondence regarding the rule of law are, with respect, misplaced. Regarding the specific prosecutions you have raised, these matters are currently before the court and it would not be appropriate to comment on them further. So that's all the response type of re response we get. And Porter continually says that, that they're before the court, so he can't say anything about it. But that's 
ridiculous. He can actually hold the prosecution. He has the power to do that. And although it wouldn't be a good precedent in some ways for Attorney General to be taking action in a court case, I think in these cases, which are clearly unjust and travesty of justice, it would be appropriate for them to be halted. And they should be. Well, when you say that they're unjust, it brings into question how many other cases have there been that we don't know about? Well, it certainly does. And you know, I, I can't uh, speculate on that. I mean, I hope there aren't others, but there may be. There certainly may be that we just don't know about. The, the Witness J case only came to light because of sort of accidental information going to a journalist. And that's how that became reported in the Canberra City News, which is a, you know, a giveaway paper. Uh, and then people heard about that one. So, yes, there may be others um, which would be extremely concerning, would mean that we really are turning into a police state and uh, a, a dictatorship. But, and that's clearly Australians shouldn't be accepting that and won't accept it, I don't think, when they know about it. Take us back to RoboJet and how that began. I'm not sure when it was started, but I think um, Christian Porter was one of the early ministers of it and was uh, in the design of it. It left taxpayers with a debt of $1.2 billion and ruined many people's lives. I understand that people, some people committed suicide because of it. And, of course, many others were extremely stressed at receiving notices that they had to pay back debts that they didn't think they had. So that was an appalling program. It reflected a lack of humanity and a lack of understanding of people who are less well-off, poorer. It's just not something that a civilised society should be doing to those citizens. Another thing I would like to go into is the administrative appeals tribunal and some instances there. Back in um, before the last election, Porter made about 86 appointments to the administrative appeals tribunal, including ex-liberal MPs and former staffers, and one was an advisor to Porter who was given a seven-year, $245,000 a year job. And another one, and this is reported by Crikey, Christian Porter appointed former Liberal Party Senator Karen Sinon to a $496,000 a year position as Deputy President and Division Head of the Social Services and Child Support Division of the AAT, despite her not meeting the requirements of the Administrative Appeals Tribunal that she be an enrolled legal practitioner and a minimal qualification, which is a minimum qualification for even a lower member of the AAT. And there was an interview panel, which included at least one retired senior judge who did not interview her, let alone recommend her for the role. She had no experience in the areas of social services and child support law. But Porter, when he was asked about this, merely said that all the appointments are made on merit. Uh, this uh, is not an appropriate way for the AAT to be set up with people who don't have the minimum qualifications and the experience. And also, there was another instance where Alan Tudge, after he was acting minister 
found by a federal court to have engaged in criminal conduct for detaining an asylum seeker for five days in defence of an order of the AAT. Porter said that when Tudge did that, that he agreed with Tudge and that implying that he shouldn't have to agree with the outcome of a court. And this is absolutely appalling that the first law officer of the land, who's meant to be upholding the law, would say that a minister's opinion or action is outside the law, basically ignoring the AAT as a justice of the um, court said when this went to an appeal, said that this was a criminal act by touch, that really Attorney General Porter had just excused, when really, really he should have been taken to court for contempt of court. Now another one is a report from the ANAO, National Audit Office, on into military contract for light vehicles, which was suppressed. Porter suppressed five or six paragraphs of the audit office report, which was critical of the uh, department and critical of the contract because only one company was allowed to tender for the um, contract. So it was a single source contract and it was seen not to be value for money. And this part of the ANAO report was suppressed. Well, there can't be any valid reason for suppressing criticisms of the management of the contract like that. If we're not going to be able to have that transparency in our governance and, and the way departments go about contracts, that's another appalling statement about this, of our system at the moment. That was reported by Michelle Fay and Michael West Media. And she said, in a move that sent ripples of alarm through the parliament, the public service, academia and the wider community, Porter prevented the Auditor General from making key sections of the report that was critical of a $1.3 billion arms deal between the federal government and multinational weapons maker sales. Doing so, Porter defied 100 years of best practice. That's been reported in the Canberra Times. Christian Porter is in charge of the Integrity Commission legislation, the federal ICAC, basically. He has exempted, really, politicians from being subject to that ICAC. And the union representing AFP officers has said that it amounts to a protection racket for government MPs. Um, I think that's quite a good quote on that. Uh, and just reflects the that, you know, he's really trying to prevent MPs, I think in staffers would also come under that, from being subject to uh, corruption investigations. And we know that, you know, there's plenty of reasons why there should be some at the moment with the, the sports rorts and the, all the other programs that have not followed proper process and that have just been used as pork barrelling for Liberal Party electorates. We have come to a very sorry place, I think, in the Australian government and their integrity is very much under question. People might know one or two of these issues that you've talked about, but when you put them all together, it's very damning and you've got a very tight-knit government. Ministers and the party all stick together to protect people like Porter. 
Yes, well, in the past, government ministers would have had to stand down for any number of these things like the sports rules and, and other programs and uh, for these things that Porter has done, like not reporting his national security information orders for his canoodling in the bar, for his suppression of details of the audit office report. There's more. I mean, in February just this year, Porter and his legal office in court tried to prevent the eminent lawyer, Brett Walker, the senior counsel, from participating in the Caleri case by initially refusing to provide him with permission to join a case under national security provisions and refusing to move the hearing date so Walker could participate. Now this was, uh, has been criticised by the judge, but this is, I mean they keep saying that they are model litigants, that the Commonwealth is a model litigant, and that is they do everything perfectly, but this is far from the case. And he was also accused of interfering in the court proceeding by screening documents held by Woodside Petroleum. And independent Senator Rex Patrick asked in question time recently, he asked why Porter demanded the federal government have first access to the documents held by Woodside before they were provided to Caleri. And this is really not acceptable for the Attorney General to be interfering in the, in the court case like this. I don't know, they're trying to protect Woodside Petroleum or Downer or people responsible at that time. I don't know, um, Josh Frydenberg was an advisor at that time when they were bugging the East Timor officers. So yeah, they're all in it together, I'm afraid. And this is a, a real shame on Australia and shame on our legal system at the moment. So Porter should stand down regardless of this serious allegation, which there should be an inquiry into. He should stand down regardless of that and the outcome of that because all of the other incidents and behaviour in overseeing the law show that he is not a fit person to be taking on that role of Attorney General, the first law officer of the land who is meant to be protecting the rule of law in Australia and that hasn't been happening far from it. How confident are you that there will be this fully independent inquiry? Well, I'm not confident. I would hope that there would be one because, I mean, he should want one too because otherwise this is just going to be hanging over him uh, forever. So if he can clear himself through an independent inquiry, I would think that he should welcome that. But that's not the whole story. As you've pointed out, there's a lot more to his life than that. Yes, well, all these other matters with the Administrative Appeals Tribunal, the National Security Information Orders, the prosecutions of Bernard Cleary, Witness K and David McBride, they all represent, I think, failures of judgment that don't befit an Attorney-General. Okay, Catherine, thank you for talking with me today. I've been speaking with Catherine Kelly from the Alliance Against Political Prosecutions. Three CR Community Radio, eight five five AM. Palestinian scarves 
and they're a symbol of support for justice for the Palestinian people. Buying one will support the last remaining factory in Hebron that makes kafirs, and all proceeds from the sales support projects in Palestine, especially Gaza, as well as local solidarity organizations. From the traditional black and white kafir to an array of modern designs, all scarves are just $30 each. Explore the range and order online or drop by 3CR during business hours. Wear your support for the rights of Palestinians. Go to kafiyas.org.au. That's K-U-F-I-Y-A-S.org.au. A 3CR supporter. Like last year, Voices for Creative Nonviolence was disbanded to allow a new peace and anti-war group to be established. Kathy Kelly was a coordinator of both Voices in the Wilderness, and which was followed by Voices for Creative Nonviolence, and is there at the beginning of the new group. I asked Kathy first about the wind-up and the, the goods and materials no longer needed and where they are going. You know, among the supplies that we have are many things that are used for camping and for long walks and vigils, uh, tarps and tents and cots and sleeping bags. But the most valuable item we've found in um, distributing items over the last two very, very, very cold weather weeks in Chicago were um, cook stoves and propane fuel that people living under viaducts need. And, and in this very, very alarmingly chilly weather, the, the harsh elements are all in force and people are living homeless in the Chicago area. Are there an increased number of homeless? You know, it's very hard to say from year to year. I think that there are some emergency warming centers that do open up. But in, in all my years, I've never seen a year when people weren't living under bridges and viaducts and out in parks. And this is true all across the United States. What's the new group, Kathy? Oh, well, we, we think about a group that will call itself To End All Wars. There's a, um, a book that Adam Hochschild wrote with that as the title. And, of course, it was coming from the World War One vision that Woodrow Wilson had failed to fulfill um, that World War One would be the, the war to end all wars. But we believe that to end all wars, you really have to take the weapons out of the toolkit completely. And uh, that is going to require tremendous work. But um, Sarah Ball and I uh, were very pleased to be able to collaborate together um, for a retreat that uh, followed in the history of some very fine peacemakers stemming back to the time of trying to end the Vietnam War. And um, the person who uh, was the lead person in the retreat had urged us to really contemplate artwork, music, and poetry to augment what we want to say and do. And uh, so so I think that that's good advice, and there may be more of that uh, ahead for us. You have a fairly big group of people. Oh, no, we've always been a small group. We probably always will be a small group. Although, I was on an advisory board call for World Beyond War, which is growing internationally. 
And some of the people on that call said they really think public opinion is going to tilt more and more toward being um, frustrated with and disgusted with the forever wars and the endless wars. And just as we might not have expected Black Lives Matter to emerge as such a, a reliably important force in the past year, it, they were thinking that maybe the anti-war sentiments will also emerge. So I don't know what form that will take, but I wouldn't be surprised if we don't find more people coming on board with the idea that we can no longer afford our senseless, futile, wasteful, ghastly wars. I mean, when you think about Iraq and Afghanistan and now Yemen and, and the, the way we need resources to deal with the catastrophes we really do face, I think perhaps we'll find that there are more people coming on board with these ideas, particularly from a younger generation. Well, you had a, a successful Zoom meeting with yourself, Sarah, also Jim Forrest. What's Jim's story? Well, at the moment, his story is that he's in the hospital and his wife actually had to take his place, but he fortunately had written down uh, an entire script plus photos for what he wanted to present for a retreat that was focused on the theme, Finding Hope in Turbulent Times. And, and Jim's story takes him back to a time during the Vietnam War when he said he was feeling a hurricane of depression. And he had worked so, so hard with people like uh, Tom Cornell and Dorothy Day and Thomas Merton to try to create a, um, uh, an option for young men to opt out of going to fight in Vietnam by claiming conscientious objection. And, and this had taken the form of a group called the Catholic Peace Fellowship. And they were really quite successful in promoting draft refusal and conscientious objection. But, but he realized that they weren't ending the war, that the bombs were just pushing out of the bays of bombs and attacking homes and burning civilians and killing children. And he was feeling very, very, very low. And he uh, wrote a letter saying as much to Thomas Merton and in this retreat, he um, presents all of Thomas Merton's letters to a young activist in which Merton tells him, place your faith in smaller realities of relationships uh, and don't expect that somehow uh, your verbiage and your words are going to enact the changes you want to see. He was counseling patients, but saying that perhaps the greatest hope is to be found in building relationships. And then uh, Jim Forrest was also a friend to Dorothy Day, and he reflected on her constant prayerfulness, her constant uh, discipline of meditation and prayer, and felt that that was also very, very important for her and for her work. Can you see a beginning of what Jim was talking about with Biden's recent U.S. foreign policy announcement calling for an end to the war in Yemen? I wish I could be more optimistic, Jan, but it seems that already there's been a backtracking, a backsliding on that with assurance to the Saudi royalty that um, the United States will always help them defend themselves. And what they've done is so indefensible in waging offensive war 
against Yemen, and, and there's no language about lifting the blockade. There's no indication that the United States is seriously going to stop the um, capacity of the Saudis to continue with the blockade. And, and the Saudis can say, well, you know, the, the Houthis have attacked us, and so everything we're doing is defensive. It's not looking very positive at the moment. There has to be, I think, a big push by all manner of human rights and faith-based and anti-war groups to say to the Biden administration, we, we won't accept a backtracking. Surely, though, the Biden administration has seen that human rights groups are calling on the United Nations to actually blacklist Saudi Arabia because of their killings of children in Yemen. And that's certainly uh, the right thing to do, and I wish the United Nations well in doing that. But at the moment, I, I don't myself see the, um, the kind of uh, metal, M-E-T-T-L-E, metal, that uh, Biden would have to show, I think, to be able to go up against the military contractors and say, no, you know, we're done with sending your shipments of weapons over to Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates. But uh, I suppose time will tell, and this is certainly a very crucial time, but the, yeah, you know, we, we've we've known now for six years that Iraqi children who are suffering from starvation don't have time. Did you end up getting into Yemen, or were you stopped completely? We were never able to get the visas. It's a complicated affair to get a visa to enter Yemen because of the blockade. You know, the the airport is shut down in Sanaa to civilian. Uh, travel and you have to go through the World Food Program and get special approval to be on a special flight. And until you have that approval, you can't get the visa. But it's a catch-22 because you can't get the visa, so you can't get that approval without showing that you've actually got a visa. So I, I don't think it's um, very likely that many journalists are going to get into. Yemen, but they have the best option because sometimes the World Food Program can make an exception and bring a journalist in or bring a camera person in. But um, the big need, I believe, is to lift that blockade and let Yemen start to function as an economy again and start to rebuild. You just wonder sometimes, don't you, how much you can punish a people for wanting to have their own lives? Well, when I've been looking again at the history of what was done to Iraq, it's a whole lot of punishment that can be meted out. You know, from August 2nd of 1990, when Saddam Hussein invaded Kuwait, up until the 2003 shock and awe bombing, the United States constantly claimed that they were punishing Saddam Hussein, that they would never uh, let a smaller country uh, be taken over by a larger country, and so they had to punish Saddam Hussein for invading Kuwait, but it just kept up relentlessly. And, of course, the, the mainstream media was enormously cooperative and didn't inform United States people about Iraqi efforts at diplomacy back in August through to the uh, January uh, Operation Desert Storm. There were efforts on the part of the Iraqis to 
pursue a diplomatic negotiation, and they had offered a proposal that really wasn't a very bad proposal, but it was not revealed to people in the United States. Uh, and similarly, people in the United States never learned about the numbers of Iraqi children, hundreds and thousands of children who were sickened and poisoned and tortured, really, through hunger until they met their death because of the economic sanctions. And the country is still crippled. Oh, yes, I think very much so. We began with the, the ending of Voices for Creative Nonviolence. Looking back over those years, Kathy, you've made many, many friends and been to many, many places. What things will you remember most? Uh, well, I certainly am grateful for the Gulf Peace Team. Way back in 1990, we encamped uh, close to the Saudi-Iraq border in a, a desert spot. Um, we were an unusual assortment of people. And I think we grew closer and closer to one another after the war actually broke out and we knew that bomber planes were dropping bombs quite likely in Baghdad and other urban areas all throughout Iraq. Uh, that was quite an, an education for me. I'm also grateful for any time that I went into a federal prison. Again, an important education for me and a chance to say I withdraw completely in terms of, you know, freely giving complicity or support to a country that will wage these terrible wars. I was always grateful for every chance to be a guest of the Afghan Peace Volunteers, and those young people are still, to me, are the heroes in our world, uh, trying even under a very, very insecure and frightening situation to share their resources and promote an idea of moving forward without weapons. How are you and your friends keeping in touch with them? Well, I think that the, um, the the social media is very important for that. You know, um, young people in other parts of the world don't have a lot of access to uh, Internet and sometimes apps like WhatsApp or um, Facebook Messenger really are the, the best way for them to communicate. Uh, it's difficult to have a, um, a video chat via Zoom because they don't have that kind of bandwidth, really. Uh, but sometimes we can reach them through Skype. And then on the 21st of every month and on the 21st of this month, there will be a Global Days of Listening phone call when they gather together. And uh, I worry because with COVID, uh, many of them have been hit and very badly sickened by it. And I don't know if they should be gathering together. I hope they're all wearing masks. But um, they have a conversation with whomever wants to listen in. Uh, in fact, their topic on the 21st of this month will be, is, is nonviolence viable in political decision-making? What's happening with the government of Afghanistan at the moment? and? working to end this war, or is it out of their control, really? It's up to the United States to actually stop this war that's going on in Afghanistan. Well, so far, I think the United States has negotiated a troop withdrawal, but they certainly haven't negotiated a peace arrangement, because negotiating the peace would mean um, helping the country figure out 
how to rebuild an economy and how to begin to do the things that make for peace, which have to do with restoring infrastructure uh, and uh, helping people receive health care and engage in education. Now, meanwhile, the Taliban have formed a kind of a shadow government, I suppose you might say, in um, many places all across Afghanistan. And I think the Taliban are very strong when it comes to adjudicating property disputes or land disputes. And so in more rural areas, those are often very, very big deals, and the Taliban will manage that and then um, sort of uh, also weigh in on who should be educated and and who should be doing the education or who should be delivering health care. So in many places, it, it seems like there's a sort of a, a collaboration of sorts between the actual Afghan government and the Taliban forces that have control over the roadways leading into various towns and actually within the towns. And I think in the rural areas, uh, the Taliban's more primitive and sometimes seemingly medieval practices wouldn't be so jarring because if they haven't been urbanized, some of those groups haven't entered very far into you know 21st century understandings of things. But in the cities, it could be quite different. And I wouldn't be surprised if, should there be a Taliban takeover, many people wouldn't want to flee the cities and possibly get get to other countries. Uh, I'm hoping that there won't be an outbreak of civil war. But it doesn't seem that uh, the Biden administration will be putting a high priority on Afghanistan. And it's more likely to me that there will be a kind of a kick the can down the road to say that, you know, we're going to withdraw some troops and then put those troops back in. And then the Taliban will say, well, you didn't, you weren't faithful to the agreement and the fighting will continue. So in a sense, is Afghanistan like two countries, the urban and the rural? Well, I think that that's true. I'm not arguing for a division by any means, but I do think we have to look at the reality that the way of life in the rural areas is very, very different from what has developed in urban areas such as Kabul or I should imagine um, parts of Kunduz or Herat or Kandahar or Helmand provinces, Lashkarga. But it's it's not a country with a, a thriving urban cosmopolitan reality almost anywhere in the country. What's going to keep you occupied for the next few weeks, Kathy? I'm trying very hard to finish an article about Iraq, and then I do have a couple of Zoom presentations to do for, uh, one is for a a, a university class, and another is for a group of people undertaking a fast in Canada to protest the Canadian expenditures on weapons. And then I'm hoping that a number of us can uh, collaborate to perhaps develop a new letter with regard to Yemen and get many, many signatures on the letter as soon as we can and get that letter going to the Biden administration. Just finally, take you back to January 6th. What was it like? Mm. Well, for me, I was needing to really think about President-elect Joe Biden at that time, saying as 
you know, he saw the insurrection unfold, the ransacking and, and the killing and the, the the shouting and the invading. He said, this is not who we are. But I think, Jan, that when we look honestly at the United States history of overthrows in other lands of other people's governments, of ransacking of other people's cities, of invasion and bloodletting and torture. When we look at that history, you know, we may we may say this is not who we are, but this is what we do. So I thought that it held up a mirror, not one any of us want to look into. But I, I for one, cannot point to any one of those insurrectionists and say you don't represent the United States. I I think in many ways it's what we've let ourselves become on the international scene. And so we have to look in that mirror and earnestly want to change ourselves. And you don't believe that Biden is looking in that mirror? Oh, I think he wants to make a lot of needed changes. You know, he's trying hard with regard to the uh, disaster that he's inherited in a sense for uh, health care delivery in a time of COVID. I think he would like to raise the minimum wage. I think there are some needed changes he'd like to make, but he's a militarist and a centrist. Do not see him being the person who could take on the big military contractors, Boeing and Raytheon and uh, Lockheed Martin and, 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 and the terrible, uh, almost gangster-like groups that have commandeered so much of the United States wealth and resources for making wars against other people. And also, you know, they're still provoking a Cold War with China and with Russia. And we don't see that President Biden is saying this has got to stop and it'll stop now with me. Okay, Kathy, all I can say is keep warm and keep safe. (laughs) Keep safe. Thank you. It's always good to hear your voice, Jen. Thank you very much for asking questions all the time and making us think. U.S. peace activist Kathy Kelly introducing the new group to end all wars. Women rise up globally against femicide. Celebrate International Women's Day online with activists from different nations speaking about the resistance to gender-based killing. Learn about the global movement against femicide from panellists bringing views from Australia, Mexico, the Confederate Colville tribes and the United States. Sunday the 14th of March at 11am Melbourne time. Hosted by Radical Women in Australia and the US. Email radicalwomen at optusnet.com.au That's radicalwomen at optusnet.com.au For information and registration details. Everyone is welcome. Radical Women is a 3CR supporter. I think 3CR is the voice of the people speaking back to the establishment and telling them what they think and sometimes it's something they don't want to hear. On the 11th of March 2011, the world changed for many millions of people, both in Japan and worldwide. But it was the people of Japan who not only suffered the impacts of the disaster, but largely the cost. The tsunami caused by an earthquake and subsequent nuclear disaster 
was the world's most complex. Today, 10 years on, I'm speaking with Dr Tillman Ruff, Australian Infectious Diseases and Public Health Physician, with a particular focus in the urgent health imperative to eradicate nuclear weapons. He is Associate Professor at the Nossal Institute for Global Health in the School of Population and Global Health at the University of Melbourne, and he's also a past president of the Medical Association for the Prevention of War and a founding international and Australian chair of the International Campaign Against Nuclear Weapons. Tell me, were there signs that a disaster was inevitable in Fukushima in March 10 years ago? Indeed, was there a history of corruption and collusion of Japan's nuclear industry prior to the Fukushima disaster? And that was a root cause of the disaster itself. I mean, it's hard to say, you know, at any particular point that here now this is inevitable. But certainly if you look across the nuclear industry historically in the decades that it's been operating, although everybody has heard of Chernobyl and Fukushima, the two worst accidents that have damaged reactor cores, there have been a whole lot of other incidents where damage to the core and to the fuel inside it has occurred. Some of them were associated with off-site releases, some of them weren't, but they certainly were all serious accidents with the large potential to, to release radioactivity into the environment in an uncontrolled way. And if you look at the historic frequency of those core damage accidents, then it's about one in 1,500 reactor years of operation. And for the boiling water reactors, the Mark I version, the old style that was in the Fukushima plants that blew up, the risk of those core accidents in those reactors was more like one in 800 reactor years. So essentially in a country like Japan, where you, there are just over 50 nuclear reactors operating, 54, you would expect you know, 50 reactor years per year you would be having a core melt accident of the order of once a decade or so. You know, in a country like the United States where there are over 100 operating nuclear reactors, you would expect more. So these are not rare events. And in places uh, you know, where people live in, in proximity to a whole range of, of um, nuclear power plants, so particularly the northeastern part of the US, the central part of Europe, you know, even ostensibly non-nuclear countries like Austria are surrounded by nuclear reactors. Uh, in the Czech Republic, in Poland, in Germany, you know, on every side of them, vulnerable to, to fallout, and, and Japan as well. In those places, when you put the total number of, uh, of reactors together, you know, what are the chances of somebody living there being exposed to significant radioactive contamination that would warrant evacuation? It's about 2% per year in, in some of those areas. So this is not an infrequent event. And in Japan, I guess there were particular reasons why perhaps an accident was more likely and if it happened, why it might be managed badly as it was. So the first reason, you know, why, why might it be more likely? Well, firstly, the, the Japanese nuclear industry was sort of foisted upon it by American pressure back in the 50s and it's always had this intensely sort of political uh, dimension to sort of try and show a, a benign face to atomic technology in the country that suffered the ravages of the first two nuclear bombings in war. I mean, that was the American motive for sort of imposing nuclear power very aggressively on Japan back in the 50s. So regulation has always been rather secondary, and there's been this very corrupt and collusive 
revolving door relationships between nuclear industry, government, regulators, you know, people just move in and out between them. And it's a highly incestuous sort of world onto its own with pretty perfunctory regulation in many aspects. And there was significant corruption involved in a number of aspects of nuclear uh, reactors, both their construction and their operation. The chairman of TEPCO um, had to resign back about 20 years ago because one of those scandals you know, blew up in their face where they had, over a long period of years, and other nuclear power vendors were doing the same thing, were basically bribing the officials that were coming to do inspections so that they would do either completely absent or very perfunctory uh, inspections that took none of the detailed measurements and inspections that they were supposed to. The chairman had to resign because of that. It's very likely, I think, that a number of the instances of corruption and shoddy inspection safety tests that didn't happen were likely to have been in the Fukushima Daiichi reactors that were under construction over that period. So that's the first reason. And the second reason is that the nuclear industry has had such a, a mantra that, and such strong support from government that they've been able to operate for decades with this myth that because Japan is a sophisticated, highly advanced, in a highly regulated environment, we know how to do this, major nuclear accidents like Chernobyl can't happen here. And because of that you know, just completely pulled out of the air myth, there was no preparation undertaken for a severe accident, no carefully planned and rehearsed systems, uh, no pre-deployments of stable iodine for people to take quickly to minimise their radioactive exposure to radioactive iodine in the event of an accident, how people were to evacuate and, and where to. None of that was really worked out because the myth was simply, this is not going to happen. Uh, we don't need to prepare for this. And of course, the other external factor, external to to Japan in a sense is the fact that it's such a seismically prone part of the world and you know it sits at this junction of three major tectonic plates. The place is alive. I mean uh, over the years I've probably spent more than a year in Japan in total you know and most trips that are more than you know a couple of days or a week or two you will feel at some point earthquakes wake with the house shaking you know this is a part of life in Japan. The tsunami that was triggered by the earthquake that, that produced this massive nuclear disaster was, yes, a very severe earthquake over nine magnitude, but globally this is not such a rare thing. There were 11 earthquakes that big in the 20th century, and there have already been five that big this year, and most of them followed by tsunamis. There were massive earthquakes and tsunamis with run-ups into the valleys where the water level rose you know, over 40 metres in both the 1890s and in the 1930s. And there are old people in Fukushima who still remember that um, in the 1930s. So this kind of severe disaster with an earthquake and tsunami is, you know, is pretty likely. The nuclear power plants, because they need active cooling from water, are often positioned near the sea. And in the case of the Fukushima Daiichi plants, basically to make the construction easier and cheaper, instead of building the reactors more safely on the hill, which was about 50 metres up from sea level, they were dug down just to make it cheaper and easier mm -hmm. up the cooling water. They were actually dug down close to sea level, so they were particularly vulnerable to this kind of event. So, yes, it was 
guineas to gooseberries that if you kept operating nuclear power plants in Japan at some point, there would be a severe accident. Is it true that there was strong evidence that radioactivity began leaking from Unit 1 as a result of the earthquake, even before the tsunami hit? This is a really important point, Jan, and it's been pretty, um, pretty highly contested because the argument from TEPCO and the argument from the government is essentially that, look, it wasn't the earthquake here. The systems operated effectively to shut down normal operations as a result of the earthquake and then the emergency backup generators and cooling kicked in. It was the, you know, the unprecedented tsunami that um, clobbered the whole plant and inundated everything, the electricals and the pumps and all the control areas and, and that produced the meltdowns. If you look at the evidence, the first published evidence about this was from a, a very reputable international group of atmospheric scientists who used monitoring data available outside Japan, in fact, a lot of it through the Comprehensive Test Ban Treaty. So this is the system, the global monitoring system that's been set up to detect nuclear test explosions underground that occur anywhere in the world. And it's got elements of both seismic detection and of um, detection of radionuclides in the atmosphere. There are quite a number of those labs in Australia monitoring posts. It's a great network to contribute to. This international group said, hey, there were evidence of releases happening even before in the 40 minutes or so between when the earthquake struck and the tsunami hit. And the biggest and best, I think, uh, best resourced investigation into the disaster was was the Independent Investigation Commission, the first ever, in fact, commissioned by the Japanese National Parliament, the Diet, which produced a, you know, a stunning, detailed, forthright, critical, constructive report in 2012. The, the Commission's report certainly suggests it doesn't make an absolute bold statement, but it's, it's pretty clear that they felt that there was strong evidence that the radioactivity release began before the tsunami hit. So that has really important implications because, you know, for the tsunami, it's really just nuclear power plants near the coast that are vulnerable, which is quite a lot of them, especially in Japan, but it's not all of them. If it's a feature of earthquake damage, and that's something that virtually every nuclear power plant around the world is susceptible to, and it certainly raises the stakes, um, you know, with earthquakes in the future. And what was the reaction to that result of that report? Look, the government was very muted in its response, unfortunately. They made, as you would expect, a whole series of recommendations on the back of their extremely forthright and blunt conclusions this was a man-made disaster that could have been prevented, that the government neglected public safety. Their, pri their primary interest wasn't in protecting people. It was in um, reducing cost and risk and protecting the operators. Really blunt uh, about how poorly it was managed and really saying it's urgent that we change the situation before the next disaster happens. It's, it's a it's a really important report that I'd, I'd really encourage people to read. It's widely and readily available uh, in English. They, they were extremely transparent. All of their materials, their hearings were public and, and all of the material was published. They made a whole lot of recommendations. Kiyoshi Kurokawa, a very distinguished physician and sort of science policy advisor who'd been advisor to a number of Japanese prime ministers, chaired the National Science Council in Japan, chaired that commission and he... I just heard him speak about it um, 
just a couple of days ago and you know he said the same thing repeatedly basically those lessons haven't been learned our advice hasn't been heeded in the main there's one exception where a new regulatory agency has been created to try and have a little bit more independence but the way it's working isn't an awful lot different so his sort of fairly blunt assessment is that look the lessons haven't been learnt and not much has changed. And were there any lessons learnt from Chernobyl? The Chernobyl reactor was, was, was quite a different reactor design and a lot of the sort of protectors and defenders of the nuclear industry were you know saying well that was a a Russian reactor design, this RMKB reactor, you know, that, you know, natural uranium graphite moderated reactor, different design, you know, that, that has intrinsic instabilities and vulnerabilities, which it probably does. And it's also because the Chernobyl accident happened basically because the operator late in the night, in the wee hours of the morning, were basically continuing an, an unauthorised experiment into... Um, testing the, the safety, the systems of the reactor, and basically doing an experiment that that that, that ran amok. It was basically a clear human error. So for both of those reasons, there's I think been you know on the part of the industry and government more deflection that this is not relevant here because the US and most of Europe and and Japan you know they don't have those kind of reactor designs and um, and because it was the setting of this kind of intrinsically not very stable reactor uh, that the Chernobyl disaster happened. So I think for both those reasons, as well as, of course, the, just the power of the vested interest, the lessons of Chernobyl were not really adequately learned. There's been more change after the Fukushima disaster, yeah, because those boiling water reactors are fairly widely used around the world. So most countries have done some sort of review of of their, of their reactor safety and, and done some upgrade. Always a compromise, always contested by the industry, you know, always a balance between the ideal and, and what's considered affordable. But in general, it's probably fair to say that nuclear reactors around the world, especially in, in well-regulated places or relatively well-regulated places, are, are a bit safer now than they were before Fukushima. As a health professional, how do you judge the treatment or otherwise for the people in the days, weeks after, and even the years after, in those areas? I think it's of great concern, Jan, how people have been treated, and it's really what keeps me, you know, wanting to stay involved and making noise about about this and not letting it be forgotten and swept under the carpet because people have been really shoddily treated and continue to be really shoddily treated in large numbers, I think absolutely inexcusably in a country that has the capacity and resources to do an awful lot better. Uh, and that really started, you know, from before the beginning, from basically not countenancing the possibility that serious accidents might happen, um, making no plans. The evacuation zones were a mess. They progressively expanded. They knew that the main fallout cloud would be going to the northwest, to right towards the city of Fukushima, but they didn't act on that information. The evacuations were completely hit and miss. Um, people moved, some cases from less to more radioactive areas. Some people had to move six, seven, eight times. Some people in very contaminated areas, especially in, in a quite a large uh, sort of 
locality called Itate. It was only when Greenpeace activists went in there in April, like the disaster happened early March, 11th of March, it was only in late April that Greenpeace people were there and, and, and discovered enormously high levels of radioactivity that, that the government had not picked up at all and made a noise about it, and then evacuations began. But some of those weren't completed until June. Those people were really you know, left in, in quite a contaminated environment, really inexcusably. Virtually nobody got the stable iodine medication that if you're properly prepared for nuclear accidents, then you, know, you should have access to that immediately because that will reduce the body's uptake of the radioactive iodine. That's the main cause of the thyroid cancer. That is a particular problem in children, but also adolescents and adults afterwards. Iodine wasn't used at all. For the people who were told to shelter, stay indoors, they were basically just abandoned. A lot of them didn't know how long to stay, what to do. They had to come out to get food and water. There were really no provisions made for them. And of course, it was an extremely difficult situation because of the massive damage that this huge earthquake and, and tsunami had caused, you know, 500 kilometres along that coast, knocking out transport, roads, communications, bridges, power, gas, you know, it was, and it was a really cold sort of late winter cold snap uh, with heavy snow. So that was incredibly difficult environment, but people were really shoddily treated. And all of the limited effort that was done to assist people to relocate, to provide some alternative housing for people who wanted to move for Kushina to provide some sort of support um, to, you know, for them to re-establish homes, lives, work, was only ever applied to the people in Fukushima prefecture. But of course, radioactivity doesn't respect boundaries of any kind. And there's quite a lot of contamination areas, some of it to the ex similar extent as the worst areas in Fukushima, in Miyagi, in Itate, in Ibaraki, and in the other five neighbouring prefectures, even down as far as Chiba, just north of Tokyo. And no provision has been made for those people. So there's, there's been this sort of arbitrary constraint to, to just confine it to Fukushima. What all of the international health agencies, the International Agency for Research on Cancer and World Health Organization were saying is, please learn the one lesson of Chernobyl, set up a proper system to register people and be able to, to study and effectively respond to the long-term health impacts that you might expect. And Japan could easily do that, set up population-based registers, get a, you know, basically a listing of everybody who was exposed, roughly how much radiation they got, and then monitor their long-term illness and health and pregnancy, et cetera, outcomes. None of that has been done. The only active examination that's been done, and I think largely to try and reassure people, was regular ultrasound examinations of the neck of the thyroid gland in children who were less than 18 at the time of the disaster in Fukushima every two years up until age 25. Um, and those early studies um, that they've now into the fourth round of, in fact, have shown that uh, the rate of thyroid cancer in, in children in Fukushima, you know, who were born since the disaster, is about 80 times higher than the national average, and that there's a gradient within Fukushima Prefecture so that there's a clear correlation with about four times as much thyroid cancer rate in the highest contaminated areas as compared to the low contaminated areas. And it's not as big as the Chernobyl epidemic of thyroid cancer of many thousands of cases, but it's 
you know, it's hundreds and it's the evidence is really clear. And that's obviously the first sort of signal, one of the early tumours that will really start to kick up after radiation exposure. And basically the response has been to tr essentially try and shut down the studies and make the results as difficult to find and understand as possible. You've been listening to part one of an interview with Associate Professor Tillman Ruff, looking back on the 11th of March 2011 and the nuclear disaster, the tsunami and the earthquake at Fukushima. Next week, part two. Featuring world-changing documentaries aimed at inspiring a better world, this year's Transitions Film Festival covers themes of art, activism, climate change, social innovation, epic architecture and the future of our planet. Transitions Film Festival, available virtually from February the 26th to March the 15th, online and nationwide. The Transitions Film Festival is a 3CR supporter. G'day, my name is Margie Thorpe. You are listening to 3CR Community Radio 855 on your dial. We have seen record numbers of protests in Latin America recently, explicitly calling for an appropriate response to the pandemic, alongside the protection of healthcare workers and social and economic welfare for the population. Ecuador, Brazil, Bolivia and Chile have all grown increasingly feeble in their justifications for both a lack of action against coronavirus as well as their increasingly authoritarian behaviour. Suffice to say, the Latin American right is being undone by its contempt for public healthcare. Its contempt for an essential human right. And with their traditional backer, the USA, embroiled in its own pandemic nightmare, the kleptocrats, religious zealots and maniacs leading Latin America's right wing are now on their own, it seems. And the region's people, from all available evidence, are perfectly aware of this fact. And their actions against this public health and political emergency are becoming all the more radical. After all, it is a matter of life and death, as it has always been in Latin America. You are listening to 3CR Community Radio 855 AM on digital and online. 3CR Radical Radio. Two decisions came out of the Canberra Parliament last week. One, an initial cost of $452 million, and the other... 498 million. One was for the expansion of the Australian War Memorial and the other an initial commitment to address chronic failure in aged care. Could you hazard a guess which came out on top? That's right, the Australian War Memorial. Described by one commentator as a big brand, theme park. With opinion now being expressed widely that the expansion of the War Memorial will normalise weaponries and war rather than honour lost lives and that the war memorial risks becoming something much uglier, an endorsement of the decision to send Australians to war. One person who has opposed the expansion of the war memorial from the outset is Dr Sue Wareham, representing the Medical Association for the Prevention of War, 
of which she is president. Sue, what's been the ALP position on this expansion? Yes, the ALP unfortunately has been fairly supportive of the redevelopment of the War Memorial and maybe that's to do with the fact that they're scared of saying anything that looks as if they're not totally supportive of everything that Australia does militarily. There's always that in the background, I think. General support for the redevelopment is still Labor's position, so they waived it through Parliament uh, the other day. The only one who voted against it in Parliament was Andrew Wilkie, independent. But the two Labor members of the Public Works Committee who did put in a dissenting report, which was very pleasing, were David Smith and Tony Zappier. And their concerns were they didn't wholly criticise the whole concept of the redevelopment, but they were concerned about the cost of the proposal and also about the proposed destruction of Anzac Hall, which has been a a source of much criticism by many people, including architects, of course, but many other people as well. Just what is Anzac Hall? Anzac Hall is a large part of the War Memorial. Um, It was built, completed only 17 years ago and was award-winning architecture, but there are displays of aircraft, famous World War II bomber. It's used for functions, which is another problem in itself to have celebratory and corporate functions in the War Memorial, but it's it's used for that and it's, it's quite a draw card to the War Memorial. Have you visited War Memorials overseas to compare what we have here to what they have? No, I haven't done research on this overseas, Jan, but one of the things that we do know, for example, in England, the Imperial War Museum, we understand it does give greater recognition to efforts for peace and uh, peace, well, those who advocate for peace before wars, wars even begin. But one of the other interesting things about the Imperial War Museum is that it's conducted from various different locations, different venues, One of the things that the Australian War Memorial here absolutely refuses to contemplate in Canberra, the War Memorial actually has premises out at one of the suburbs called Mitchell, which is easily accessible and there were purpose-built premises there starting from the 1990s. These premises were built and they've been added to since and they were specifically for storage and but also exhibition of what the memorial calls large technology objects which are the big bits of military hardware like tanks and other ground vehicles and fighter aircraft etc so it was specifically built to display these things and now the war memorial is saying that is not a fit place to have these so-called large technology objects and that's one of the key reasons that they want to expand to such an enormous expense. This really is a vast expansion that we're talking about, 24,000 square metres. So we could look at the example of the Imperial War Museum and learn that it is possible to have displays in different parts of a city or in fact different parts of a country. Nearly 500 million is an awful lot of money. How do they justify spending that and exactly what do they want? Well, there are various elements to the redevelopment and the destruction of Anzac Hall and its replacement are only part of it. But the most troubling part is that there are going to be huge areas, including a glass-covered walkway, but huge areas devoted to displays of weaponry, basically. And this has been the point of contention for a lot of people, including Medical Association for Prevention of War. 
there are other aspects associated with it related to research and other parts of the memorial, but most of the floors and it's 24,000 square metres that we're talking about. Most of the additional floor space is going to be for displays of weaponry and that's why this project has been so contentious. $498 million amount of money, you're quite right. We, we could in fact compare it to the amount that the Prime Minister announced for additional funding for aged care just a couple of days ago, which was a smaller amount. It was $450 something million dollars. And we could compare it for all sorts of areas of funding that are underfunded and you don't need to look far to find things that need more funding, including services for veterans themselves. But our other national institutions, most of them are grossly underfunded. We're losing capacity at the National Library, which does important research, including in our region, Asia-Pacific region. We could look at just about every area you want to think of, environmental remediation health, education, all of these things are so important to having a not only a good functioning democracy but a good secure place for Australians to live. And we could look back to the World War One veterans who uh, whose phrase we remember fighting to end all wars and I mean the whole area of peace building and prevention of wars has really been marginalised along the way, particularly with this new redevelopment there's not going to be as far as we understand and from past practice of the memorial there's not going to be examination of the context of Australia's wars and how they might have been prevented and what could have been done differently and these are all the things that we really owe a duty to our service people to examine the wars that we go to could they have been prevented were they necessary how could things have been done differently what have we learnt from them the whole focus of focusing on military hardware, which is really, it's about how we fight wars. It's not about why or the context. The whole focus and concept is deeply flawed in the opinion of many people, including Medical Association for Prevention of War. And of course, it's not just the extension or the expansion that we're talking about. There's a huge budget every year ongoing to keep this place running. Yes, there, there is a big budget. I mean, it's, it's a big institution. There are a lot of staff there and it's appropriate that it has an adequate budget, but it shouldn't be a budget that's disproportionate in relation to our other national institutions and other areas of expenditure that, that we mentioned that our other national institutions, most of them are struggling. It's not appropriate that War Memorial gets disproportionate attention and um, budgeting that's when it does become more a matter of not commemoration of our war dead, but militarism and militarisation of our of our whole war memory, and that's quite a dangerous thing. Have you or your colleagues spoken to returned service people to gauge their opinion of this war memorial and the money that's been proposed? Well, we do get feedback from some service people who support what we're doing and also from the families of, of veterans who also, uh, and when I say what we're doing, I'm in the opposition to the redevelopment. There's a young woman, Kelly Merritt, whose husband, Paul Pardol, was the first Australian to die in the Iraq war. And she is deeply opposed. She's spoken out against it. She's given input to the War Memorial. She gave input to the Public Works Committee. It was very powerful input about why the re redevelopment was a very 
very bad thing and deeply troubling to people like herself, but that's all basically ignored. So it's very hard to make progress when the opinions of people like that are, are not fully taken on board. And of course it's also deeply troubling to many that allowing international weapons manufacturers to fund part of this memorial. Yes, it is, and that's been a source of, I'll, I'll say controversy, that's putting it kindly towards warm world. It's more been a matter of severe opposition from a lot of people and the general public. The warm world does receive funding from the companies that make huge profits when we go to war. However you look at that, you'd have to see it as a vested interest in warfare. The companies that rely on warfare, rely on nations being in conflict, they're actually helping commemorate our war memorial. It's just plain wrong. It, it's offensive, offensive to the memory of these people. It's a conflict of interest which shouldn't be allowed to proceed. Our organisation has taken this up on an ongoing basis with the War Memorial Council and with the director, past and present. But the War Memorial Council consists primarily of military and former military people. There are a few others, but it's predominantly military and former military. They're really not interested in, the, in even examining the idea that this is a conflict of interest. So again, on that issue, it's hard to make, hard to make progress, but we are continuing with that. And there's strong public support for the view that weapons makers shouldn't be funding our war memorial. How do they justify that interaction, or don't they have to? Well, it is partly a matter of they, they don't seem to have to. They're not, not held to account over it. Um, the government doesn't seem interested in the view that this is a conflict of interest, so they're not really held to account over it. The former director of the War Memorial, Brendan Nelson, was asked about this at Senate estimates more than once over recent years. And his answer is that he doesn't just accept this funding from the weapons makers when it comes along, he actively seeks it out. And he believed that it's part of their duty to help to fund the War Memorial. That's really stretching things to state that. Would we be welcoming, for example, tobacco companies' money in funding uh, a lung cancer ward in a hospital? Would we be welcoming the alcohol industry in funding a memorial to those who die on our roads? I mean, there's something about the notion of conflicts of interest that the war memorial just doesn't seem to understand. Not just conflict of interest, but propaganda as well for war. Well, yes, yeah, certainly it's a nice thumbs up for the companies themselves. They have their names displayed in the War Memorial, which is grossly improper in itself, but they do have their names displayed there. When you go, when you first go inside the memorial, they're um, up in a panel behind the reception desk, and at various places throughout the memorial, names are mentioned, not in big bold flashing lights throughout the memorial. Thank goodness. But for example, we have the BAE System Theatre, which is the name of the theatre within the War Memorial itself and named after BAE Systems, who've been giving naming rights. This is the company that is a key supplier to Saudi Arabia and United Arab Emirates, who are doing such terrible damage in the bombing of Yemen, which is causing horrific humanitarian problems in Yemen. So it's, it really is just outrageous that this company, which also has been 
accused of corruption in various matters. It's outrageous that this company is given naming rights within the memorial to our war debt. It's not the sort of thing that our service people have, have gone to war and fought over. It shouldn't be about corporate interests. It should be about simply commemorating those who have died in war, dying with the ADF. So we will be continuing that struggle to get the weapons makers out of the war memorial. I mentioned before asking you if you had any contact with ex-service people and their, their opinions on this redevelopment. What about in Canberra itself? Because I know that the War Memorial is a, a big tourist venue. What do Canberrians think about it? Well, we've had a, a lot of positive feedback from people in Canberra. I don't have figures Canberra versus the rest of Australia, but I just know that this campaign to oppose the War Memorial has been strongly supported by a lot of people right throughout Australia, um, I'd say, and I think it's it's more a matter of looking at what Australians generally think rather than Canberrans. The Little Group Heritage Guardians, which has been coordinating a lot of the opposition to the redevelopment, we had over 80 fairly eminent Australians from a whole whole range of fields who were eminent in their chosen field, including quite a lot of historians. And they all signed a letter in relation to the proposed redevelopment uh, last year, and it was uh, strongly critical of the redevelopment and urging that it didn't proceed. So there's that. MAPW has examined fairly closely the, closely the so-called consultation processes that the War Memorial has engaged in, in face-to-face meetings um, when such things were happening regularly, face-to-face meetings um, in various cities around the um, cities and towns around the country. We had reports back from people at those meetings. The meetings have been portrayed by the War Memorial as supporting the redevelopment, but in fact the reports we get is that they were they were the opposite. People were very concerned about the redevelopment. The recent Public Works Committee inquiry, we looked carefully at the submissions to the inquiry and a strong majority of them were opposed to the redevelopment and yet the Public Works Committee still came out and just gave it a tick of approval. So we can see that at really every step along the way, there's been strong opposition there, which the War Memorial somehow turns around to its advantage, somehow turn it into support. So the whole process has been really quite farcical, deeply worrying. I mean, consultation processes for such a significant project as a huge redevelopment and really a makeover of our preeminent place of war, of war commemoration. Consultation should be genuine consultation on this and it should be really highly regarded. It should be properly done and the results should be taken notice of. What we're seeing is that the results are really just brushed aside. It's a matter of ticking the boxes. Yes, we've done consultation. It doesn't matter what the results are, but we've done it. Well, what role has the Australian Heritage Council played Well, that's interesting also in terms of just brushing aside critical comment. The Australian Heritage Council, which is the government's own heritage advisory body, and it's chaired by Andrew Kemp, who was a former Liberal minister, the Australian Heritage Council came out and said that the redevelopment should not go ahead. The council had serious concerns about it, and even that has been set aside by by the proponents, by the memorial 
and by the government and the Public Works Committee. And we saw that the whole process for heritage approval, which goes to the minister responsible is Susan Lay, who's it's the Department of Agriculture, Water and Environment and Heritage. Uh, comes within that department. But Susan Lay just gave it a tick of approval too, even though the government's own heritage advisory body was against a proposal. The capacity to just ignore authoritative opinion has really been mind-boggling on this project and utterly disgraceful. Well, as we started, the Public Works Committee has approved it. It's not the end, though, is it? It still has to go before the Australian Capital Authority or the National Capital Authority. You're right. There's one step left, and that's approval by the National Capital Authority, given that the Public Works Committee has now given green light to the project. So the National Capital Authority will be considering the redevelopment, so we'll be watching. We'll be urging people to contact the, get on the National Capital Authority website. Listeners can register either as an individual or ideally as an organisation, but also as an individual as a stakeholder in this process. So anyone who's interested in the process can register to be a stakeholder. That's easy to do on the NCA website and ask for your opinion on this in whatever form the NCA chooses to ask people. So I think it's important that we get as many people as possible registering because this is an important process. It's extremely important for our nation. People can register uh, right now. We don't know exactly when the NCA will be starting to consider this. They need to wait for the War Memorial to send them the documentation and the, and the proposal, and that hasn't yet happened. It could be a few weeks away, but we don't have a lot of time on our side. So I'd urge people to hop on the National Capital Authority website and register as a stakeholder in this process. Thank you, Sue. Dr Sue Wareham, the President of the Medical Association for the Prevention of War. You're listening to Radical Radio 3CR. You know, there's people, like you said, have been on casual for seven years. Well, it's supposed to be casual employment. People want full-time jobs. They don't want to be sitting there casual, not knowing they're going to get any any days, any leave or whatsoever. Especially, you look at all the casuals in the, our industry at the moment, they're sitting home. You know, people want full-time employment, and they, sh- they should be entitled to That's full-time right. employment. And look at all the people who were used and abused as casuals in the aged care sector and all the problems that are facing people now and all the deaths that are following. And the meatworks, a lot of that's casuals, labour hire, you know, you've got blokes travelling around, you know. We want full-time positions and, you know, that's... And people want it. We want to be full-time employed. You want to have your Christmas holidays. You want to have time with your family. But when you're a casual, you get none of that. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio 855 AM on digital and online. 3CR Radical Radio. The ICC opened its formal investigations on Wednesday last week into alleged war crimes in the Palestinian territory areas after a painstaking five-year preliminary probe. In a move blasted by the Israeli Prime Minister as the essence of anti-Semitism, the response of Palestinian authorities was that they hailed the decision 
as urgent and necessary into the Gaza Strip, Israeli-occupied West Bank and East Jerusalem since 2014. At the weekend, I spoke with Palestinian-Australian Nura Mansour, and my first question was how she felt when she heard the decision had finally been made by the ICC to prosecute. My first reaction was that it's been a long time coming, (laughs) and hopefully we are at that threshold where impunity is not going to be preventing, basically, justice from being delivered. So this is a very significant, obviously, decision for Palestinians, not just uh, Palestinians in Palestine, but Palestinians everywhere, um, in diaspora, in refugee camps. That is a significant decision, and obviously as a Palestinian, but also as um, uh, you know, a person who feels very passionately about justice and global values of equality and freedom, uh, yes, obviously this is a decision that I, uh, I celebrated. What's been your reaction over the past years of the Australian government's support for Israel, unabashed support for Israel, even though there's been these human rights abuses against Palestinians? Yeah, it has been disappointing, especially the announcement um, that followed the ICC statement uh, from the uh, Australian government. That was disappointing because um, as a Palestinian living in Australia, and I have been living in Australia for the last six years, I feel like Australia as a country, uh, as a government, uh, should echo what Australian people think and what uh, Australian people feel about and how they feel about human rights and global values. I I doubt that this uh, statement that was issued by um, the uh, foreign minister echoes what Australian people actually feel when it comes to human rights and war crimes and human rights violations. And, of course, it's not just this decision from the ICC. It's been this government's support for Israel for many years. Yes, that is true. Just to clarify that. So this government has been supportive of Israel, obviously, um, uh, unconditional support, but also it has followed like Trumpist policies in, in the region, which is uh, highly problematic, if you ask me, as a Palestinian, as an Austra- as, uh, also as an Australian. It's going to start at the year 2014. Are you disappointed that she's not going back further than that? I am obviously human uh, human rights abuse, crimes against humanity, and war crimes have not started uh, in 2014. It dates back to the Nakba, prior to the Nakba in 1947, 1946, and 1948, uh, where the ethnic cleansing has started in Palestine and was carried out by Zionist militias in Palestine. So uh, human rights abuse and war crimes is not is not a recent thing in Palestine in that context. And I do wish, if you ask me as a Palestinian, I wish that uh, obviously justice would extend to throughout the whole uh, region, uh, throughout the entire time, and not not just be um, something that is um, only pursued recently. What was the justification for choosing 2014? Are you aware of that? So basically what happened is that the ICC is basically entrusted by the international community to pursue or or promote accountability in order to deter future war crimes from happening. And that was being basically introduced through the Rome Statute. 
the Rome Statute basically says that any state party has the right to refer a situation to the ICC, and as long as there's reasonable basis, of course, based on the Rome Statute criteria, and there's admissible cases, which the ICC has found in its uh, preliminary investigation, it has found that there's admissible cases in um, the West Bank, in East Jerusalem, and in Gaza. So as long as these conditions or criteria are existent, then uh, they have the obligation and responsibility to pursue investigation. There was a report from Haaretz that following in the announcement, the Israeli government had plans to brief hundreds of senior security officers, both past and present, over the risk of their exposure to prosecution. And of course, there's the Israeli, the former Israeli defence leader and leader of the Blue and White Party, Benny Gantz. He's right up there, isn't he, for his involvement in the massacre in 2014. Yes, that's correct. So the, the, the ICC decision, basically, those admissible cases are um, just illustrative in the sense that they are not only going to investigate these cases, but they will uh, open a wide and uh, more broad investigation, including checking or under determining whether there's individual responsibility as well. Do you believe that Israel will try in some way to sabotage the investigation? Israel has been very open with its reaction to the ICC decision. Um, it's, you know, the decision has been denounced, labeled the ICC as anti-Semitic, and we've also seen same or similar responses from the U.S. urging the ICC to basically not pursue this avenue. I believe the pressure has started earlier, before the decision was announced, but now the pressure will definitely uh, intensify. Hamas has agreed to the investigation. Was that expected by all? Yes, so Hamas and the PA basically welcomed the decision of the ICC and said that they're, um, you know, it's a decision that they celebrate and welcome, even though Hamas basically is also one of the parties that's being investigated for war crimes. Can you envisage how this investigation will proceed? Because I'm quite sure that Israel will try and block the ICC investigators from coming to the Palestinian territories? Yeah, it's really hard to talk about these um, possible scenarios and to basically to assert what the Israeli reaction is going to be. Um, but Israel is definitely not going to be collaborative on this matter. It will try to exercise political pressure and basically uh, push through its allies as well to place more pressure. And we know that the head of the ICC is going to be basically changed in June. Maybe that that's an area for them to also try and, and uh, push for a different approach to the ICC. I think once the international community agrees that these are some these are like war crimes and that they're worthy of being investigated, Israel would look would look really badly if they don't collaborate even though they will try to obviously uh, obstruct a fair investigation. Is there any timeline on how long the investigation will be? No, there's no timeline for how long this investigation will take. It could take years. There's a few other factors that will determine. One of the factors that might uh, determine uh, the length of investigation was the uh, territorial jurisdictional question which uh, Israel claimed that the ICC has no jurisdictions in, in, uh, in the Palestinian-occupied territories in 1967, to which basically the ICC 
in the preliminary discussion or stage where they, the ICC sought a ruling from a court to uh, determine and clarify their, their territorial scope. So based on that ruling, the ICC has the scope and they may exercise their criminal jurisdiction in Palestine, that, which includes Gaza, West Bank and East Jerusalem. Do you believe in some sense that the acknowledgement that this investigation will begin will offer some protection for the Palestinians in the occupied territories, or could it be the opposite and make life harder for them? I don't know if, if it's possible to make life harder for the Palestinians in the occupied territory. I mean, when we think about Gaza, Gaza is like, you know, you have two million people living under siege for the last 13 years, almost 13 years, who are now going through a global pandemic under siege. So I, I don't know how much worse it can get. I think, though, again, this is a step in the right direction, the ICC statement and ruling. This basically symbolizes that no party, no state should have or will have impunity uh, from crimes and from violations that it commits, and that uh, accountability is, by the end of the day, something that countries and people should seek, uh, and they have the right to do so under international law, but hopefully we will see justice by the end of this process. The second issue is COVID-19 and the vaccine rollout. There is growing concern regarding the inequitable distribution between Israel and Palestine, and Israel has the vaccines. What's the latest that you know of? If we were to look at Israel, you know, we listen to the news and Israel is being hailed as a country that has vaccinated over 50% of its population. It's, it's being hailed as a leading country. And recently, there's been a discussion within the Israeli cabinet whether they vaccinate a Palestinian worker to work inside Israel. And um, initially, they uh, issued a decision that said they will vaccinate those people who don't have a legal status in Israel, except for Palestinian uh, settlement workers. But then they uh, reported that they will vaccinate uh, 110,000 Palestinian workers. But just a few days ago, it has announced that it will postpone that decision until a further notice. So even Palestinians who work in Israel, Israel currently is not vaccinating. Well, finally, it's been reported that there's been an international outcry over this. Have you noticed this international outcry? So definitely there's been international criticism of the way that Israel has been uh, handling its vaccination policies around the world, where they basically uh, systematically exclude Palestinians living in the West Bank and Gaza from receiving vaccination, but also not, not just excluding, but also uh, limiting and in some cases blocking. What can be done to get those vaccines into the occupied territories then? I mean, this is a great question because I think everyone has a role to play in this. And I think what Israel and Israeli government seems to very well is pressure from countries, political pressure from international organizations, uh, from allies, from non-allies, from the media. So this issue needs to be discussed and needs to be given its proper weight in the media. And we don't really hear about COVID vaccination and, and COVID situation in Palestine. Uh, we keep hearing about how successful Israel it is in vaccinating its own citizens, but we don't hear how basically a discriminatory 
uh, its policies has been when it comes to providing the necessary conditions for the Palestinian Authority and the Palestinian people to take care of their own citizens and, and their own people and ensuring that they also have equal chances uh, of survival when it comes to global pandemic. I've been speaking with Nura Mansur, Palestinian-Australian writer, activist and community educator. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.